0: From the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we are part two of our interview with pastor and author Lillian Daniel. We discuss her recent book, When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough, and talk about the influence of America's religious history on our democracy. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin reviews The Still Point of the Turning World, the recent book by Emily Rapp. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Lillian Daniel. Lillian Daniel is the author of When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough. She's a pastor here in Glen Ellyn, Illinois. We're speaking in the context of a conference at Wheaton that is co-sponsored with the American Bible Society on the Bible and democracy in America. Reverend Lillian Daniel, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. Well, in your own work as a pastor, you you yourself have dealt with uh, life in the congregation. You've mentioned that you've been a pastor for twenty years, and one of the fruits of this time is this book that uh, has a very peculiar title: "When Spiritual but Not Religious Is Not Enough." So, would you mind telling our listeners uh, briefly what was it that led you to write this book, and and what the purpose of the book is?
1: Sure. So today, the congregational church is a very open-minded church. But one of the things that we're not great about is making a case for why church matters. And yet we believe that there's meaning and depth in the life of faith. So how do we make a case for why that matters? And in particular, how do we make that case to people who say, I am spiritual but not religious? Of course, people define these things in different ways. But for me, when I make the argument, I'm talking about spiritual but not religious as people who do not wish to or will not um, participate in a community of faith in any way, but want to do this in an individualized way.
0: But why is it not productive for mm-hmm. religious life to have this kind of individualism? I mean, aren't, aren't Americans just a nation of individuals anyway? Isn't this just a progression of the good American ideal of my way or the highway? I
1: think it is a progression. I think we are individualists. I think we're also a bunch of narcissists. I'm arguing for a space in the middle where we actually say, I believe my life is richer and better because I participate in this community. I actually think it's good for me to be shaped by a tradition larger than myself. I actually don't think that my unique thoughts in any given moment are are better ideas than anybody else has come up with in 2000 or 10,000 years. You know, I think it's good for me to be shaped by community.
0: So I appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to explain the thesis of your book, uh, When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough. And now I'd like to broaden the focus a little bit and ask if we're if we're in agreement that this individualist streak in spiritual behavior maybe has some problems, and I, I appreciate your use of the word narcissism. I think that that's right on point. Well, if we then turn that around and say, so you are instead giving a, a positive model for a different way of being religious, what does that look like as a politics? When someone when someone takes your argument and says, okay, I am now going to make myself a part of this community intentionally, and I'm going to submit in some ways to, to this, this greater – this greater uh, uh, group than just myself and my own lights, what does that then begin to look like as political action?
1: So I want church to be reasonable, rigorous, and real, you know? I want it to be reasonable and that you can have questions about the virgin birth and you can have different political points of view. I mean, you know, you can interpret things differently. I want it to be um, rigorous and that like it matters that you study it and you'll get more out of it if you if you put some work into it. And then real as in we have our real problems that we bring to the table, addiction, human sexuality, um, divorce, struggles with money, you know, all of that. So then then if the purpose of church is to be transforming of you and to and to shape and change you in the company of others, I would hope that that would change the way you would act as a political person. And some of the behavior we see in politics is is so um, so negative and and divisive and and stuck, right? And maybe imagine. A church where people disagree with each other in the political realm, but are able to talk about big questions and big ideas, could be our salvation or a, a way out.
0: Well, let me then sort of make this very real and, and bring a, a personal aspect into it. So, I I'm a person of the Catholic faith, and I I'd like to think that I'm a good Catholic. But if I if I stand alongside some of my more conservative wishing to reject Vatican II Mm -hmm. (laughs) Catholic brothers and sisters, uh, they might nod their heads and say, well, yes, you go to communion and that makes you in one way a Catholic, but you're not actually a Catholic because of this social issue or this social issue. And without getting into those fine-grained details, which could get me in trouble here on the radio Mm -hmm. with my pastor, let me simply say, I find myself at times in struggle with the Church. And so is that me being narcissistic? Is that me being an individualist? Or is that is that in some way a real and honest struggle that you would affirm?
1: I think that's you being a human being. Mm. And in some ways, going back to the way Jesus behaved. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. He came out of a tradition where you had midrash, which was different rabbis would write about scriptures and they disagree with each other and they would have debates. You know, and when did, when did we in the Christian tradition decide that that was not okay? And um, similarly, in the Catholic Church, there's a huge tradition of different interpretations of scripture and of doctrine. Um, that's nothing new. To shut that down is really, um, that's really kind of the... The um, blip on the radar screen for most of Christian history, you've had lots of debate and foment. And of course, then you have the Protestant Reformation, where, you know, the lay people get to get in on that too. Um, so I think you stand in a rich tradition of, of chaotic discourse, and, and the Holy Spirit moves through that.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Uh, today we're speaking with Reverend Lillian Daniel. Reverend Daniel is the author of When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough. We're speaking in the context of the Wheaton Conference on the Bible and Democracy in America, co-sponsored with the American Bible Society. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, so we don't want to go too far in the individualist direction because that leads to narcissism. But I'm also hearing in what you're saying that we don't want to go too far into what we might call the group mind sort of and and sort of fall into doctrine and let that be our pillow and our resource. So there's some sort of balance there in the middle. And I'm going to bring out a a term that has been used a lot this weekend at the conference, this notion of humility. And so what role does humility – Uh, play in this process of finding that middle ground between the narcissistic individualism and the collectivist groupthink.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So humility is what makes us realize that we don't just do it on our own. Uh, And a narcissist only can see it through their own lens. But with humility, we say, okay, the root of the word religion is connection. Maybe I could be changed as being part of a community. Maybe my mind would be changed. Maybe I'll be transformed in some way. And isn't that an interesting idea? I love the way you described yourself in the Catholic Church because it's nuanced, right? And it acknowledges that, that the Catholic Church is not this monolith. But for people standing outside the church looking in, often the ones who call themselves spiritual but not religious, they often describe Christians in this monolithical way as though there's some tyrannical pastor telling everyone what to think, and the people in the pews are these sort of mindless slaves who do whatever they're told. It's such an insulting stereotype.
0: But don't you think in some ways that people of faith contribute to that stereotype by closing the ranks and presenting to those outside this this very lockstep, kind of, well, we all, you know, to be a good Christian, you believe this set of doctrines. I mean, I've definitely encountered Christians like that.
1: Yeah, so so they're out there, and they get all the airtime, but you just gave witness to something very different. Mm-hmm. We need more people like you to say, um, that, is, that is not true of all of us. Uh, when I look at the people in my pews, they are interesting, nuanced people of a variety of points of view who ask hard questions, if only they would do whatever I told them.
0: Goodness. So then, let me turn this back around and and think about the political process. So, if if humility is a is a good uh, sort of resource for finding a middle ground between individual narcissism and collectivist groupthink in one's religious identity, what can what can people of faith bring to the public sphere? into our very, very admittedly broken uh, public discourse Mm -hmm. at the present moment. How can humility, uh, how can that same sort of humility help us in the the secular world?
1: Well, one of the things that so many religious traditions share is a warning against being self-centered. You know, just this basic call that you should take into account other people and their well-being and not just your own. And that's something that I think we are really seeing dropping out of the political conversation. Is just the sense that guess what? It's not all about you.
0: So if it's not all about me, and if I'm if I'm supposed to be uh, taking care of those that are around me, this brings us back to that wonderful question that was asked of, of Jesus in the Gospels. Well, who is? that person that I'm supposed to be taking care of? Does that mean everyone that comes up to me on the street on, on you know, Chicago's streets? Or does that mean just the people that I so, sort of like the looks of? Or how, how do I tell who is the person I'm supposed to be thinking about in that context?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we all interpret that differently. But the point at which, you know, the people you consider your neighbors are all people who agree with you on all your own ideas, you're probably off base.
0: This is things not seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is the Reverend Lillian Daniel. Uh, Reverend Daniel is the author of "When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough," and she's a pastor here in Glen Ellyn, Illinois. We're having this conversation in the context of a wider conference at Wheaton College about the Bible and democracy in America. That's co-sponsored by the American Bible Society. So we're here at the end of the conference when uh, this conversation is taking place, and we're we're uh, We're looking back now on the conversations and the discussions. So as we look back, what will you be taking away from the conference? What sticks with you?
1: I think I'll take away the spirit of civility and the positive conversation that took place among people who had very different political points of view and theological points of view. It gives me hope for the politicians.
0: Well, and so we... we I'm actually surprised by that. We didn't see very much in the way of uh, posturing. We didn't see very much in the way of, of combative questions. We did see a, a little bit of the politics come out, but even, even when it did, it was it was respectful. Um, so what do you think it is about the, the modeling of this particular conference that made that kind of that kind of thing possible. And uh, let me just give a little color to that. As I was uh, live tweeting this and, and sort of writing things on Facebook that I was here, I had some comments come back saying, ooh, you're going to need to take a, a, a Silkwood shower after you've been on the Wheaton campus. And I, I was surprised by that because what I I've, what I've found here was that the, the conversation and the welcome, even for someone with my particular political bent, was I felt just very, very welcome here.
1: I think we've got to stop stereotyping people, and I think people outside the Christian faith stereotype Christians, but sometimes we within the Christian faith stereotype each other, and you can no longer presume that somebody who claims the label of evangelical Christian for example, does not care about the environment. You know, you cannot presume that. And similarly, you cannot presume that somebody like me in the United Church of Christ or a congregational church who will perform your gay wedding, right, you can't presume that I don't care about the Bible and Scripture and that our people aren't studying Scripture and have a certain biblical literacy. We really have to let go of these stereotypes of each other.
0: But then how am I going to know who to get mad at?
1: That's a great point. Um, why don't we all just get mad at your people, the Catholics?
0: <laughs> That's been tried before.
1: <laughs> but you know you know what I'm talking about here yes. and and I think a lot of times we we define ourselves and we make decisions as churches based on who we hate at a current moment and it's like a it's like a dysfunctional family. We hate our family members the most.
0: And so this reactionary posture of needing somebody to hate in order to know who we are. Mm-hmm. It seems like the entire model that you're trying to give us tries to step away from that and and to understand the the plight of the other. So I'm a complex person, and I assume that the person sitting across the table from me is a complex person. I don't want to be reduced to a stereotype, and so I don't reduce them to a stereotype. This sounds an awful lot like something I read in a book somewhere that you should treat others like you want to be treated. Is that basically what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah.
1: Who was that guy who said that? I
0: don't know. Maybe some hippie. I don't <laughs> he know. He might
1: be on something. Yeah. No, I think they i mean, and people who criticize the church and will say, oh, you know— I'm not a Christian or I don't want to prove the church because I met this one person who like hurt my feelings or you know didn't live out the values. It's a very immature understanding of community. You know, it's sort of like if we could kick all the human beings out of the church, we could really do this Jesus
0: thing. Goodness gracious. But but then again, isn't there a place for doctrine? Isn't there a place for the protection of the received truths of the faith, isn't there? I mean, what what do we do then with those that would basically want to say, okay, anything goes?
1: You know, you're probably asking the wrong person that question, because I'm, a, I'm not, you know, absolutely on anything goes, because I do believe we're shaped by a tradition. But in my uh, particular tradition, we have for a long time believed that we don't have tests of faith that a list of beliefs is not supposed to be used as a test of faith. They are testimonies of faith. So the Apostles' Creed is what one community of faith wanted to say to the church at one moment in history. And so if we want to recite that or talk about it, we're hearing a testimony of faith. It's not a checklist.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is pastor and writer Lillian Daniel, the author of When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough, Seeing God in surprising places, even the church. I spoke with Rev. Daniel last fall on the campus of Wheaton College when she was speaking at the Bible and Democracy in America conference co-sponsored with the American Bible Society. You can find out more about the conference at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is pastor and writer Lillian Daniel, the author of When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough, Seeing God in Surprising Places, Even the Church. I spoke with Rev. Daniel last fall on the campus of Wheaton College when she was speaking at the Bible and Democracy in America Conference, co-sponsored with the American Bible Society. You can find out more about the conference at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. So as a pastor, as a person who deals every day in the real lives of people, but also as an engaged member of our political community, as you look at the landscape of America today, what gives you the most nervous shudder and what gives you the most hope?
1: I think there are a couple of issues that one day our grandchildren are going to look back on and it's going to be for them as the civil rights movement is for us. They're going to look back and they're going to think, what on earth were you thinking? This is such a no-brainer. I believe those issues will be civil rights around gay and lesbian folks. Um, all of those issues, I think our grandchildren will look back in the same way that we look back on civil rights and say, what were you thinking? And then the other is, I think they're going to look back and say, how could you have been so asleep at the wheel on issues of the environment?
0: And so those are the things that give you moments of nervousness. So what, as a pastor, gives you hope as you look at our political landscape?
1: Well, what gives me hope is that perhaps, you know, our grandchildren also look back and say there, there was a passionate minority um, of people of faith who, who really, because of their faith, were inspired to stand up for the right things. In the same way that we look back and see the early Congregationalists who were abolitionists, long before that was the majority opinion in America. That gives me hope. Um, Another area where I feel hopefulness is around immigration. Uh, In the United States right now, our government seems incapable of getting anything done on that issue. But in churches all around the country, you're seeing new alliances of open-minded liberal churches with evangelical churches, with the Catholic church. aligning uh, with Muslim communities, on all kinds of people coming together because we all know what it is to have a stranger in our midst. And surely we can agree that God is not a respecter of national boundaries, but is uh, in love with every human being no matter where they are born.
0: And as you look out into your congregation, do you see uh, a remnant of that passionate minority?
1: Absolutely. I mean, in our congregation, you know, we we are trying to be an oasis of safety um, in a desert around gay and lesbian issues. We're talking a lot about bullying with our teenagers and uh, working on those things. We deal with the tricky issues of the day, and we don't always agree on them. But I would love for our grandchildren and the children who grew up in the church to say, I remember when gay marriage was a huge issue, and I remember our church took a stand on it. I remember, you know, when immigration was a big issue and we had passionate debates and we engaged scripture on it. These were not things that just happened somewhere outside the building. The concerns of the world were always visible from within the church.
0: Well, Lily and Daniel, it has been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part two of our interview with Lily and Daniel. You can listen to part one of the interview at our website thingsnotseenradio.com. I want to take a moment and let you know about some new things that we're doing. First of all, we're slowly, but surely, getting back to a regular production schedule. My hope is that, starting in July, we can get as close to a regular schedule as we can, maybe even four times a month. That's the goal, anyway. We'll see how well it goes. If you're feeling in a charitable mood, please pray for us. Also, we're growing our distribution options. Now, we've always been available on iTunes, but you can now also find us on Stitcher Smart Radio and on SoundCloud. Also, we've joined forces with PRX, the public radio exchange, to help with distribution. Look for more information on PRX in the coming weeks. One last note about iTunes. If you have a minute, it would really help us out if you'd go to our iTunes page and write a review for the show you'd not believe how much that one small thing helps us. Also, if you feel like it, you can give us a rating. I hear that five stars is a very popular choice, so let me suggest that. Seriously, though, thank you for listening and for telling your friends about the show. We really, really appreciate it. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following me at Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So even if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore all of them just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scrogan discusses The Still Point of the Turning World, the recent book by Emily Rapp. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. The world changed for me when I became a father. I know that's a cliche, but it's true. Huge matters like safety, mortality, and health became ponderously important in my life in ways that they never had before, and I guess that's true for most folks. But this shift took hold in more subtle ways as well. I became a target market. Commercials that I would have never paid attention to in the past suddenly were speaking to me and to my wife. And as we watched these sappy 30-second dramas together, we found ourselves getting misty-eyed and weepy. It's embarrassing to admit, but it's true. And that's all to say that the life of a parent is profound, even when everything is going well and everyone is healthy. How much more profound, then, when you introduce a critical illness into the equation? This is the case in the recent book by Emily Rapp, The Still Point of the Turning World. Katie Scrogan offers this review.
2: There are probably no words that can adequately express what it feels like or means to experience the death of a child, especially when that child is a baby suffering from a degenerative and fatal illness an illness whose progression parents can do nothing but witness while mourning their still-living child. It's just such an attempt at expression, and just such a process, that Emily Rapp describes in The Still Point of the Turning World, her effort to give a voice to her infant son's life with Tay-Sachs syndrome. Rapp brings us into the story on the day on which her six-month-old son Ronan was diagnosed with the disease, a fatal and untreatable degenerative condition, Although doctors had tested her for Tay-Sachs while she was pregnant, the results had come up negative, and so the diagnosis threw the family into a struggle from which they'd believed themselves to be immune. The book is an account of Raps and her husband's never-complete journey of coming to terms with the impending loss of their son, with the fact that Ronan wouldn't have the experiences or the future they'd dreamed about giving him, with a need to understand and enact a parenting role very different from the one they'd come to expect for themselves. But in addition to the pain involved in confronting their son's early death, Rapp and her husband are also faced with both strangers and acquaintances' ignorant, unthinking, or even hateful reactions, not only to their grief, but to their baby, to his appearance and to the unapologetic visibility of his disease. Rapp speaks honestly about the anger that wells up when strangers give her child ugly looks or accuse her of being irresponsible for having brought Ronan into the world whether in assuming she hadn't been thoroughly tested for Tay-Sachs, or in accusing her of knowingly giving birth to her son in spite of a positive test. Although the details of such reactions are new to her, these behaviors are part of a genre of personal interaction with which the author has had lifelong experience, thanks to the fact that she's worn a prosthetic leg since her foot was amputated when she was four years old. And so when a passerby makes unthinking comments about Ronan's appearance, Rapp is also forced to revisit the hurt of a neighbor, telling her mother that she supposed it was still possible to love her child in spite of her disability. The combination of those painful memories and her new experiences with Ronan remind Rapp of her own past erroneous assumptions that one person's suffering or situation is able to be compared with another's, as if there existed a hierarchy of suffering and difficulty, with each particular situation more to be feared and avoided and hence more worthy of receiving sympathy and support as one moves up the ladder. She remembers, for example, a ski instructor, disillusioning her of her relief, at at least not being blind, and warning her more generally against the danger of favorably comparing one's own circumstances with another's. Even well-meaning congratulations at holding up so well under trying circumstances, declarations that someone is a hero— prove unintentionally frustrating to the person actually having to deal with the situation at hand. In addition to doing nothing to help a person accept her own trials or unique traits, or to discover any explanation or purpose for her own situation, such observations inadvertently denigrate the person on the wrong end of the comparison, disqualifying that person from being just as fully human as anyone else. Rapp says there's an underlying reason that many people make such comparisons, or offer well-intentioned but cruel condolences, when faced with people with disabilities, illnesses, or even some sort of notable physical attribute. The author believes that the speakers of such remarks use them as a way of providing themselves relief from, and a means of warding off, their own fears about illness, death, and qualifying as normal. Expressing condolences at the fate of another may be a way of countering one's own fears of suffering that same fate, fears that not only involve fright at the prospect of physical pain, the loss of an ability, or of death plain and simple, but that also speak to a more general discomfort at the prospect of digressing from the norm, of difference, or even of bodies in all their forms. And so professions of sympathy cause those who deliver them to feel as if they're off the karmic hook now that they've expressed something nice about an unfortunate or different person. Condolences here function as a sort of talisman, both against the bad conscience entailed in one's own negative reaction to what one sees, and against any sort of bad luck that might result in their own disability or disease. As mentioned, the desire to appear normal is evident in such expressions of concern. It shows up as well in Rapp's own grief about what Ronan will never achieve. Grief not only at the lack of a grand future for her child, but also at the knowledge that he will never reach those little milestones parents make sure to inform each other that their children have reached, a particular height and weight, the mastery of certain motor skills, or accomplishments in school or sports. If her boy doesn't achieve these things, will his life have had a purpose? Her answer to the question is an unequivocal yes, but it's an answer not everyone else is willing or able to see, Contrary to so much of what we're taught to believe, or perhaps accept unconsciously, Rep says that a person is valuable simply because he or she exists. A person's value as a human being is not bestowed on him from some point external to his own being, and so we neither have to prove nor earn our worth. It's a pointedly different way of viewing human value than the one held by our achievement-driven Western culture. By addressing these concerns about normalcy, accomplishment, purpose, and societal understandings of life, death, and worth, Rapp deepens what could have been one more Oprah-esque story of making one's way through a harrowing period into a profound examination of what life is and how we recognize its value, and her portraits of friends, acquaintances, hospice workers, and Buddhist practitioners who accept her, her baby, her family, and their situation for what they are proved that it is possible to be present for people without sugarcoating, denying, or avoiding their pain and difficulties. In giving her son and his experience a voice, Rap honors not only her child, but us as readers as well, trusting us to use the lessons it's cost her so much to learn, and hoping we'll pay back that trust by approaching each other from now on with a little more honest care and grace.
0: Katie Scroggan is an independent translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed The Still Point of the Turning World, the recent book by Emily Rapp. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WETN on the campus of Wheaton College. WETN is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas, and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our music is composed by Gene Kija. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron was our editor. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, and Alexander Badenoch. Our intern is Mary Morrison. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.
1: I'll just get mad at your people, the Catholics.